Okay, we're back on. We're going to also dedicate this episode to Harry Dean Stanton, who passed away today, just as he did before 18 part one, as we begin 18 part two of Wrapped in Podcast. Uh, We're going to finish up part 18 and have some concluding thoughts about the show. Uh, This is JR. Uh, Kyle, are you with us? again tonight Uh, i am uh, and i'm doing well but only in my dreams as real as it may seem it was only in my dreams (laughs) and ken how are you doing tonight i'm doing great jr i had a snack Uh, i mixed myself a drink the same color as fryer oil that has had firearms dipped in it and i am (laughs) raring to go (laughs) and jeff how are you doing i'm silently driving (laughs) If if only you could have had the audio of just drone as your response. That's what post production's for, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so we were last at uh, Judy's diner, uh, wandering along with uh, some jerk cowboys. What the fuck just happened? And uh, where we are now is a house in Odessa. A plain, desolate, rundown house with problematic landscaping, to say the least. Uh, and the address is 1516. Cooper looks over at the power lines and we see the same uh, power line with the number six on it in the same script that we saw on the metal uh, device in the space box that sucked Coop out into Las Vegas. Uh, the number is familiar uh, and the, the scene is familiar because it looks like the same pole, power line pole we saw uh, at the Fat Trout Trailer Park in Firewalk with Me, uh, and Andy's vision at the White Lodge, and uh, also uh, the pole where Richard Horn ran down the little boy in the street. Cooper comes up to the door and knocks. Inside, we see Cheryl Lee, the actress who plays Laura Palmer, uh, she's middle-aged. She's got a Texas accent. And she says, who is it? And Coop says, FBI. And she opens the door at this point. For some reason. Uh, right. And at the same point that she opens her door, in 17, we see a cut to the stop clock at 2.53 uh, and the superimposed Coop grayscale head, just to fill you guys in, because I'm sure you want to know. Uh, in 18, Laura says, did you find him? And Coop says, Laura? 
And she says, you didn't find him? And he says again, Laura? And she says, you got the wrong house, mister. And he says, you're not Laura Palmer? And she says, Laura who? No, I'm not her. And at exactly the same point in time, or right after, she says, no, I'm not her. In part 18, we see, we live inside a dream, uh, said by the superimposed coop head in part 17. Uh, Richard says, what is your name? And she says, Carrie Page. He repeats this, and she says, that's right. She tries to go away, and he says, wait. So the name Laura Palmer means nothing to you? And then Ken, you noted that Carrie's wearing a horseshoe pendant on a silver chain. Yeah, she's very into horses. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, She says, look, I don't know what you want, but I'm not her. He says, your father's name was Leland. She looks at him in surprise and says, okay. He says, your mother's name was Sarah. He says your mother's is, is name Sarah. is Sarah. Yeah, I thought the tenses were really Sarah, interesting right. here. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's, it, the senses are correct, right? And there's more of a reaction from Carrie slash Laura. Carrie, she, she kind of, she's a little shaken. She stutters and she says, Sarah? Uh, which really reminded me of the, the way that she says, Sarah? Sarah, she stutters. But it also sounds like the way Waldo the minor bird said, Laura? Laura, don't go there. Don't go there. Uh, and so anyway, I, that, I don't know if that was a direct allusion to the minor bird, but that's what I thought. What, did you guys get the same sense? I can hear it, yeah. Yeah, I didn't until you until you mentioned it. It is interesting right. how often that minor bird seems to sort of come back. I mean, uh, Kyle, I think maybe even a couple of us mentioned how much the drunk in the jail is like the human minor bird. Um and uh, the way that Dougie repeats the ends of people's sentences is very like the the minor bird. It seems like that's a thing that is really carried through a couple of seasons, which I wouldn't have expected. Right. And I mean, basically, the point is there's a very weird inflection in the way that Carrie says the name Sarah. She's visibly disturbed and she says, what's going on? And Coop says, it's difficult to straight to, to explain as strange as it sounds. I think you're a girl named Laura Palmer. I want to take you to your mother's home, your home at one time. It's very important. Uh, and Kyle, you noted that this uh, we see 17 and 18 converge here with this very important, which is what Andy said to Lucy right. uh, in, in 17. And, and also, as and you were says, saying it oh, right there, uh, sorry about that, Jerry, just as you were saying it right there, it reminds me of a point that Ken made when we were talking about part 17, about the suggestiveness of the line in Firewalk with me about uh, Laura saying to James, I think you want to take me home now, you know, in one sense, meaning literally it's time for you to take me home, but in another, the, the sexually suggestive aspect of it. And you kind of get the repetition of that here with, I want to take you to your mother's home. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and, uh, so Carrie says, um, listen, normally somebody co- like, like you comes around and I tell them to fuck off. This door would be slammed in their face. Right now, I got to get out of Dodge anyway. It's a long story. So writing with the FBI just might save my ass. Where are we going? So it's, it's really weird because first she thinks he's an FBI agent who's been looking for somebody that she wants found, I guess. Clearly he's not. Uh, then he's the sort of person that she would normally tell to fuck off, but now she's ready to jump in a car with him. And, and Ken, you noted, how often could somebody like Coop be coming around to this house? Yeah, although, uh, honestly, he's not as unique as uh, as one might think. There are an awful lot of Coops floating around. So maybe she just means when somebody <laughs> who looks precisely like Kyle McLaughlin right. knocks on my door, I say, no, fucking no. Right. But then last time it wasn't an FBI guy, so you're, you're cool. Uh, so he says, Coop says, Twin Peaks, Washington, uh, which I thought was hilarious that, that Carrie then says, D.C.? <laughs> And Coop says, no, state, Washington State. Uh, Carrie, apparently, geography, not her strong point, says, is it a long way? Uh, And Coop says, it's a ways away. She goes to get her things and lets him into the house. Uh, This is a really long scene. Uh, It's it's pretty drawn out. Uh, But, you know, I honestly think that that's for synchronization purposes. 
Yeah, and and to me, as I was watching it in the moment as it originally aired, and you know, I'm sitting there going, "Look, you got you know 20 minutes left here for crying out loud, and we got a lot of stuff to wrap up." Um, it, it felt interminable, and I'd put it in the category with the uh, the the janitor sweeping up the roadhouse or the French lady leaving Gordon's hotel room. That in the moment, watching it for the first time, it was maddeningly interminable. Watching it a second time, knowing what what flows from it, um, it's actually a pretty funny scene, uh, even though it's played in this deadpan way. Uh, but you know, the, it's a ways away. I mean, I, there, there's a lot of humor in this scene that you don't really get on the first viewing. Well, like all of David Lynch's work, there's a lot of humor, really good humor, right? In uh, in in deadpan humor, especially in in most of his work. I think Dune may be the exception. Not a lot of humor in Dune. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't a, change the fact that it's awesome. Sorry. There's there's a kind of a dream logic to the ways away, too. It's like one of those weird phrases that gets stuck in your um, in your head a ways away. Um, and it kind of feels like the linguistic equivalent of long scenes of driving at night or like the dreams you have where something you're trying to get to just gets farther and farther away from you, you know? Yeah. And well, speaking of a ways away, back in episode or part 17, while this conversation between Carrie and Coop at the doorstep is happening, Coop, Gordon, and Diane are approaching the boiler room in the Great Northern. Uh, the beginning of this conversation was when the disembodied head said, you know, we live inside a dream. And that's when Coop is transported to this nether zone, this liminal space, along with Diane and Gordon. And they walk to the boiler room, uh, to the door, and, you know, probably what sold me more than anything else more almost as much as the ending which we'll discuss is the moment that coop walks through carrie's door is exactly the moment that coop walks through the door in the great northern into the dutchman into his interdimensional journey uh into meeting mike who recites the firewalk with me poem and in fact he recites the firewalk with me poem just as the white horse comes into scene in part 18 in Carrie's living room. Uh, also in the living room, there's a dead guy, you know, with the head of back of his head blown off. Uh, he's sitting in a chair uh, that you can hear flies buzzing. Uh, Coop, he notices the body and he's disturbed. Uh, he kind of looks over to where Carrie went, but then sort of steals himself uh, and, I, you know, and to my mind, I think that he real he's he understands that this place where he is is not quite real. That he he has a mission, he's got to follow it. He's got to let go of his attachment to whatever has happened in this place and focus on the real goal, which is getting Laura to her mother's house. Yep. Let's see. There's a <clears throat> there's a rifle on the floor next to the fireplace. Uh, not much else, you- but it all looks pretty. Disorder. You, disorder. You did forget, I think, an important uh, detail, Jared, which was that on the mantle there was a little white horse in front of a blue plate. That comes into scene when Mike is reciting the Firewalk with Me poem in seventeen. Carrie's packing. A phone rings, but nobody answers it. She comes back and asks about Washington. Is that up, like up north? Does she need a coat? And Coop says, "Take a coat if you've got one." And she says, "I've got a couple. I'll grab one." Or duality. Uh, it, it, there, there's a good coat. There's a bad coat. Right. Hopefully she doesn't get the doppel coat. Come on. She has That's at right. least three, maybe four. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and then she comes back and says, you know, listen, I don't have any food here. Uh, and he says, I'll get us some food on the way. The phone keeps ringing and she says, all right, let's go. <laughs> and they, they, look, they look back at the dead guy and out they go. Before I move on, anything else, anybody else want to talk about Carrie's living room? No, I mean, I continue to be fascinated by why the goal of this iteration of Cooper is to get to the Palmer house, but we'll have plenty of time to discuss that, obviously. Right. I mean, it, it, it's, it bears out in the scene that that is this manifestation of Coop's goal. Um, in the car, they're driving in his Lincoln uh, at the, in the outskirts of Odessa. Uh, 
Can Carrie I, asked Richard if he's go ahead. I apologize, Jr. This is this just as Ken was saying that uh, it just it just dawned on me. We do have in this whatever it is, whatever is happening since the coop head appeared, and you know he walked through the the door at the Great Northern. His objective at every point is to take Laura home. Yeah, you know when he goes back to 1989, it is to take her away from her physical home to her home in the White Lodge, and here it is to take her back to her physical home. So there, there is this sense of Coop wanting to take Laura back to her home, the place where she belongs, just as we saw at the very beginning of Part 18, the return of presumably the Dougie Tulpa to Lancelot Court, and he walks through the door and says, home. I mean, that's that's essentially the thrust of the last 90 minutes of Twin Peaks. The return is getting people uh, going back home, which is, which is very interesting in light of the fact that the series seems to have been uh, sending this signal constantly that you can't go home again. And those of us who were you know, baking cherry pies and getting ready for a, a trip down memory lane really, really were disappointed in the straight-up nostalgia department. Yeah. And I mean, thematically, that makes a lot of sense to me. But just strategically, I don't understand it. I think my question just remains throughout in a symmetry way, what my question was in episodes one, two, three, when Cooper was in the other place, in the lodges in some way, and he was navigating his way through the world that included Nido and the bell structure and the purple sky with Briggs's floating head in it, which is, what is he trying to do here? What What is the goal, and how could he succeed or fail? It seems that he ultimately sort of fails, but, um, you know, we'll, and we'll talk about that as well, but it's just perplexing to me. Like, when we said in, before that maybe some of the coordinates were leading back to the Palmer house, that's that's very odd, right? Because, of course, um, Bad Cooper would know where the Palmer house was if he had any of Good Cooper's memories at all, if, if, uh, if that was important. And certainly, it seems like that p- place was a source of great trauma and terror for Laura. So taking her back there is not going to do her a service. It must be something about, you know, uniting realities or reconstructing the time stream or tying a loop around the reality in which she doesn't ever die or, or whatever. But it's, it's all you know, probably intentionally left quite vague. Well, and we've also seen in in both cases, both Coopers going through this, uh, you know, convenience store, Dutchman's, you know, Woodsman's hallway thing that has the wallpaper from the portrait that is hanging on Laura's wall uh, from Fire Walk With Me. So presumably, if you wanted to get to the, the Palmer house, if you're in that environs, you don't you don't have to drive at night for 20 some odd hours. You can just go through the painting and boom, you're there. And, and hell, Sarah Palmer will probably mix you a drink when you get there. So, really, there's no reason to do all this driving. Yeah, I mean, especially when you think about how they're going to drive for 25 hours or whatever it is in silence without even the radio station playing chopped and screwed music. Um, and uh, Bad Coop decided to travel like 80 feet or something by going through the, the lodges and being in right. a cage and turned into a gold orb or whatever, right? He went from Jackrabbit's Palace to the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station, a thing that was accomplished on foot by sheriff's deputies not a week before. Right. Oh, that's not true. They had to take, they, they got into the, the Bronco. Yeah, to, they did get in the vehicle, there. but it, it, it obviously wasn't a long drive. No. I mean, they could, they, no, no. They brought, uh, Jerry it was Horn, a matter of, Jerry Horn could have damn sure uh, <laughs> uh, run it. Yes. Yeah, he walked to fucking Jackson Hole. Okay. <laughs> right. Right. No, I, th- I think he ran, Ken. I, I'm pretty sure he was running. Uh, okay, so Jeff, you wanted to say something about the lack of dialogue. Yeah, this um, might be a good, and 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 I think those are good points. Go ahead and talk about it. I'm, uh, yeah, yeah, go because ahead. I think we're about to get into a long stretch of relative silence. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to kind of um, jump in, I guess, and, and talk about how little dialogue <clears throat> there was in this and episode 18, which were arguably the most Lynchian of episodes uh, in this season of Twin Peaks. Uh, and in April this year, Cormac McCarthy published uh, at the age of 83, his first piece of nonfiction, uh, which was called the Kukuli problem. And it was about the origin of language and the history of the unconscious mind. And um, there are a few moments in the article that I thought were worth quoting with regards to Lynch and these kind of largely silent episodes eight and 18. Uh, and the quote, one of the first quotes goes like this, uh, but the fact that the unconscious prefers 
avoiding verbal instructions pretty much altogether, even where they would appear to be quite useful, suggests rather strongly that it doesn't much like language and even that it doesn't trust it. And why is that? And the answer McCarthy gives, um, how about for the good and sufficient reason that he has been getting along quite well without it for a couple of million years. Uh, and then McCarthy goes on to talk about how the unconscious seems to prefer to communicate to us in the much older, uh, what he sees uh, terms as more reliable methodology of images, metaphors, pictures, and then dreams. Uh, and uh, he points out that the picture story uh, that the unconscious prefers to communicate in lends itself to parable, uh, to the tale whose meaning gives us pause. Uh, and he says that the unconscious shows us the pictures that it does in dreams, pictures, pictures that are often troubling and disturbing because it wants us to think about them, uh, to remember them. And so I I kept circling back to this essay in the aftermath of uh, watching episode 18, and I thought about Lynch's preferred method of storytelling, you know, his distrust of language seemingly in favor of images and sounds, which he seems to see as more reliable or more useful. Um, and I also thought about how the picture stories that Lynch tells sort of linger and trouble us, like I guess the most sort of serious of dreams. So yeah, I just thought this might be a good place to mention that because I don't know how much more dialogue we get a couple hundred words in this episode, but yeah, just one of the things that did stay with me was just this sense of kind of silence, desolation, you know, dread. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I might mention that a little bit later, but I think that ties back into what Kim was saying. That's great. And I feel like the picture story reference vindicates Kyle's Watchmen Corner, Kyle's right? DC Comics beat, my my Marvel Comics beat, exactly. and your awesome Jack Kirby find, uh, Jeff, with, uh, with, with, with Fab Fist Freddy. So that's great. Picture stories. And plus the future of Twin Peaks in Dark Horse Comics form, as, uh, as right. postulated by right. me and exactly no one else. Yeah. Well, Jeff, I've got two things for you on that. Okay, we the what we the what last happens before we move on to the next scene is Carrie saying, "Well, at least we're getting out of this fucking town of Odessa." But as she says this, Coop in part seventeen, because of course I'm going to talk about part seventeen, is going up the stairs in the room above the convenience store, and then there's a blast of electricity, and the jumping man appears. Uh, that's exactly the point where in 18, the scene turns to night. Right. But the point I want to make is they're in this town of Odessa. And, you know, some, some uh, commentators have uh, associated the town of Odessa with Odysseus, uh, with his um, 20 year uh, absence from his home uh, being paralleled in Cooper. Uh, but instead of that, I want to talk about my man, Julian Jaynes. Uh, since you've brought up the subject of the history of the unconscious mind. Uh, Julian Jaynes is a psychologist who came up with a brilliant yet yeah. thoroughly unprovable <laughs> theory uh, that uh, consciousness emerged in humans uh, as a sort of merging together of a bicameral brain where, uh, based on some linguistic evidence, and what he mostly uses is uh, the story of the Iliad versus the story of the Odyssey, um, stories that are, you know, a, a couple hundred years at least apart in terms of when they were first composed and much later written down. But he notices a distinction between how humans act in those two uh, stories. In the Iliad, humans are largely uh, the function of gods and what they do uh, they seem to do in terms of, of what a god in their head is telling them, or maybe an ancestor. Whereas that bridge between uh, the, the notion that one is being controlled by outside forces, the, the idea that I actually have consciousness, that I may choose what I do, uh, is more, much more apparent in the Odyssey, where Odysseus, the schemer, is constantly talking and talked about in terms of what he chooses to do, what he thinks about, what he cogitates upon, what he plans for. Whereas there's a notion in the Iliad, and according to Jane's uh, much larger in the the prehistory or the history of, of humans before that point, they never had a conception that they were self-originating, that all humans were in some sense schizophrenic, where they felt like uh, where their brains were telling them to do something, they heard that as an actual voice. A diamond, like you know, Socrates would talk about, uh, a voice in their head that was telling them to do something, and then they would do it. 
And so, you know, I, I wonder uh, to what application uh, that theory might have in Twin Peaks uh, in terms of tulpas uh, and in terms of these humans, mortals, sort of being batted around like pawns by White Lodge and Black Lodge entities. Uh, Coop himself uh, carrying out orders that don't really seem to be originating in himself. So I may have gone a bit afield, but as if you're going to bring up Cormac McCarthy and the history of the unconscious mind, which uh, is fascinating to me, and I've got to get that essay, um, I couldn't help thinking about uh, Julian Jaynes. No, that's great. I, think I that's love really Julian good. Jaynes. Yeah, it's terrific. Yeah. Yeah, and especially when you think about the way Lynch trusts only what he personally receives in dreams, and the way that he tries in his personal life to communicate with some conception of, if not the divine, then like a shared unconscious, right? A shared consciousness at the level of transcendental meditation, right? I think that Lynch is very interested in these same concepts that you're talking about. Uh, oh, I should mention, too, since we're leaving that fucking town of Odessa or whatever, that Odessa is probably, uh, at least obliquely, an Odessa Steps reference. And I've been trying to track the places where Lynch has been just an old school cinephile who really likes getting awards at Cannes and all of that during the season. So, obviously, we had Sunset Boulevard. We've had the um, allusions that I've seen to Sam Fuller. We've had the French Cinematheque stuff um, and the Tarkovsky and Kubrick stuff, which I don't think is an accident. And now Eisenstein with, uh, with Odessa. Hey guys, can I, can I uh, chime in with a Harry Dean Stanton quote? Yes. I can't yeah. necessarily va- vouch for it, but this is what I've seen. He says, I'm 87 years old. This is from 2014. I only eat so I can smoke and stay alive. The only fear I have is how long consciousness is going to hang on after my body goes. I just hope there's nothing like there was before I was born. I'm not really into religion. They're all macrocosms of the ego. When man began to think, began to think he was a separate person with a separate soul, it created a violent situation. The void, the concept of nothingness is terrifying to most people on the planet. And I get anxiety attacks myself. I know the fear of that void. You have to learn to die before you die. You give up, surrender to the void, to nothingness. Anybody else you've interviewed bring these things up? Hang on, I got to take this call. And he takes the call and he says, hey, brother, that's great, man. Yeah, I'm being interviewed. We're talking about nothing. I got him well steeped in nothing right now. He stopped asking me questions. That's a really good segue into, you know, about five minutes of silent driving. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, what? there's a lot of silent driving here, but you know, I, what another, I got to say it. So they're, they're in the car. It's nighttime. It's lost highway world They're As they're driving a pair of headlights appear behind them. Of course, nobody says anything about it for like five times. Uh, But then she finally says, is someone following us? Coop checks the rear view mirrors. uh, But you know, that's it. And so the lights, in the rearview mirror in 18 appear at exactly the same point in time that in 17, Philip Jeffries is first seen by Coop uh, when he's in the Dutchman's uh, Coop says, or in Philip Jeffries in 17 says, it's good to see you again. As if he is the lights in 18, as if he saw Coop previously, because he is the entity that exists in those lights. That's what I am positing here. And in 17, he says, this is where you'll find Judy. While in 18, Richard Coop, Richard slash Coop and Carrie are driving to Judy. Richard Jeffries, Philip Jeffries says in 17, there may be someone, did you ask me this? And then as the owl symbol appears in 17, as it comes out of the smoke and the light on the edge of the tea kettle, the car goes away. And then in 17, Jeffrey says, there it is. You can go in now. And Carrie says in 18, Odessa. So, you know, people think can think what they want. Uh, I think that here we see Jeffrey's, his goal is not just to get Coop back to Twin Peaks in the past. His goal is to ultimately get Coop into this point in time exactly. And this place exactly, taking Carrie to a, going to Odessa to get Carrie to bring her to Twin Peaks. And I was going to say, you know, this whole kind of question of the the ominous car headlights that turn out to be nothing. 
I thought this was Lynch's kind of homage and, you know, what perhaps, you know, the final episode might be the final episode of Twin Peaks um, to the guy in the members only jacket, who is kind of this ominous unknown threat in uh, the last episode of the Sopranos. So, yeah, that's what I thought of that guy in the members only jacket, these headlights. Um, so continuing with what Carrie says, she says, Odessa, I tried to keep a clean house, keep everything organized. Then Carrie says, it's a long way. Um, and at this point when she says <coughs> it's a long way in 17, we shift to fire walk with me, retread and black and white. Carrie says those days I was too young to know any better. Richard looks at her, but doesn't say anything. Yeah. I mean, it seems like this has jogged something, a little bit of something where their dynamic changes because Coop really has been looking forward impassively the whole time. And he finally looks over at her when she says something about being too young to know any better. So it's, it seems like the first time she said anything about an earlier time or a past life. So I wondered if he thought maybe she was finally starting to remember what, you know, the trauma of being Laura Palmer or something. If so, yeah, I think the same thing. If so, though, that, that really seems like an, an odd thing for her to say, because in terms of being too young to know better, uh, my God, with everything Laura Palmer went through from an extremely young age, I, I think she had seen way, way, way too much uh, of life at the, the age of 17 than, uh, than anyone ever should have. I mean, it, you know, it seems to me that you have seen too much in too few years, whereas Dale Cooper, on the other hand, uh, held on to uh, a degree of childish naivete, arguably even into uh, the current incarnation, and certainly had in the iteration in the original series. So uh, the the notion that when she was uh, uh, too young, when she was younger, she was too innocent to know any better, uh, genuinely does not reflect the the life that unfortunately Laura Palmer was forced to lead. Well, I don't know that yeah, but it's perfect. Kyle, I, I, disagree, I disagree, though, Kyle, because I think that you're thinking about Laura when she's 17. Uh, it's dark, but I don't think Carrie's talking about being 17. Uh, I think she's talking about being a very young girl with her father, you know, assaulting her, which is gross. It's terrible. But it would be the case that as a very young girl, she wouldn't know any better. Well, but again, there's no point where we're given the impression that she didn't know something was wrong. I mean, the youngest we see Laura is at the beginning of the the secret diary of Laura Palmer. Uh, and in that very first entry, you know, she's writing about whatever it is when she turned 12 years old or whatever. And, you know, at the end of the entry, it's P.S. I hope Bob doesn't come tonight. I mean, she she had a childlike understanding of the wrongness of it, but she nevertheless knew intuitively that this was wrong. I mean, I, 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 I reject the idea that we ever saw Laura Palmer at any point where she was too young to know better. She may have been too young to do anything well, about I, it. I think, I think we may, I, I, but I think that's the point. The latter point is what I'm saying. Not, not that she didn't know that it was, I, I don't think this is a, a, a moral statement. I, I think she, is saying that that she was too young to know any better about what to do about it. So, or or or, or that there could be anything she could do. So, do you guys it. think at this point that Carrie has a, a memory then of Laura's her life as Laura? I thought no, she I had don't think that she does. A complete one. Maybe yeah. like an impression. I mean, like you okay. were describing, Jeff. You know, not something she could put into words, uh, but but you know, some some images, some flashes. I mean, she clearly doesn't know. If you asked her at this point, do you know who Leland Palmer is? Her answer would still be no. But does right. she does she start to have some awareness? Yeah, I, I think I think that's fair to say. Yeah, or she has no recollection of it, but Coop is trying to decide if that's what this means. Yeah. She could have been having any random thought from the life of Carrie. Right. Um, right. That's more know, how I read it, who's Ken, killed yeah. a person. Yeah, but and, but Coop is sort of puzzling out if that's what it means. But sure. just looking at it in terms of the teenage life of Laura, that it could refer to any number of things besides the interactions, uh, the terrible abuse by Bob. She might have thought she knew better when she was trying to do any number of things to cope right the the leaning into the life of depravity thinking that somehow there was something wrong with her so she was going to go you know seduce renault brothers at the roadhouse or um you know do a bunch of coke or whatever else right the the decisions that she made because she thought that she she personally had this dual nature 
as opposed to horrible things happening to her or responding to trauma, right? She could have been too young to know any better when she was acting out in those ways, if you want to if you want to look at it from the 17-year-old Laura Palmer perspective. I think there's any number of ways of reconciling it. And of course, the self-insight doesn't have to be perfect, right? She could she could be misinterpreting her own past from our perspective or Cooper's, right? We don't, we don't know. Right. And I, I, I just want to mo- note before we move on to the gas station that while all this driving is taking place, we are seeing the retread of Firewalk with Me in black and white uh, with the insertion of Coop on the scene. Yeah. Can I mention the really gorgeous shot, too, um, where they they pan around or, or cut rather to a shot uh, of the empty back seat with just Cheryl Lee in the far right hand side of the frame. Um, it's it's from the passenger side of the car. And it really is a gorgeous composition that highlights her um, isolation and and loneliness during this this long drive. It, it looks like um, who's the painter that uh, that Lynch really likes that's known for the uh, the diner at night. Uh Hooper, Hop- Ed, Ed, I yeah, can't remember. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, my my brain said Dennis Hopper, so that's not right. Ed Edward <laughs> Hooper, right? right. Uh, yeah, not 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 uh, fuck that shit. Pabst Blue Ribbon, but the the painter, right? Um, it, it looks like one of his. And I can thank you for pointing out that this drive sequence just goes on for five minutes and twenty three seconds. It actually seems much longer than that, but that's that's amazing that it still takes up that much time. That's if you count when they get in the car in uh, Odessa? Odessa complaints. Okay. Okay. Yes. Com- self-imposed complaints about my methodology aside, I tried to time all these from when the car actually started moving to when it stopped moving. Um, so it started moving in Odessa, and then it drove at night all the way to the gas station. And then, of course, knowing when to start the clock again was a little odd, because in the gas station parking lot, it takes kind of hilariously long to pull out again. There's like another full minute where you watch cars pass. Is, yeah, one of the most <laughs> realistic depictions of traffic I might ever have seen uh, in a, a- <laughs> <laughs> you know, TV show or a movie, yeah. yeah. Hey, David Lynch is very serious about traffic. You know, he wants to show you there's a right way of of operating a motor vehicle, and bad things will happen if you don't do it correctly. You say a right way and a wrong way. I say three, maybe four ways of operating a motor vehicle. <laughs> All right, so Jeff, you wanted to talk about the Valero. Well, I mean, I was just—I think my first time watching this, I was like, okay, like I think at this point I started getting nervous, perhaps, and looking at how much time was left in the episode. And you know, if there's whatever, you know, there were 13 minutes left of screen time, you know, left in the final episode of this 18-hour season, we'd had dozens of those, you know, plot threads kind of left dangling, and I was, you know, just. I think kind of maddened by this cut to what are you going to show? You got like, you know, 13 minutes left. Let's show, you know, uh, Cooper and Carrie walking back to the car from the gas station, you know, and then the, as with the, the sign, uh, you know, the, the population sign at Odessa, the gas prices here would seem to make this more or less contemporary. Uh, And then I think on my third viewing the episode, I was like, okay, I get it. It's a convenience store. Um, so yeah, uh, in, in the same way that like, you know, the light pole, the white horses, eat at Judy's coffee shop seem to be these indications of a lodge presence of some sort in this world. Um, I, I understood that it was a convenience store. Yeah. So that's, that's about it. I'll, I'll get into my other stuff perhaps later on, but yeah, that was, that was, I, I couldn't believe how long that, you know, they were stopping to get for to get gas at this point uh, in the narrative. But then the fact that it was a convenience store, it, it, it worked into my sense of this as being some sort of pocket universe or, or, you know, even you could see it as in the same way that you will see things in like Mulholland drive and another guys kind of later on as what happened in your dream, but will just take things that happen to you, you know, during the day and insert them into your dream in little places. Uh, that's, kind of the way I saw this. Yeah. I think as the scene was happening, I started cackling at Ken's place, uh, that, that this is what they were doing with the last episode, driving at night and going to the gas station. Uh, the same way that I was cackling when I saw a fire walk with me in the theater, uh, at the absurdity of the scenes in the black lodge at the end. Yeah. So lots of silence driving and desolation. Uh, they keep driving and they're, they're now kind of an environment that looks a little bit more like twin peaks, the bridge certainly looks like they may be crossing over into the world of Twin Peaks. 
Anybody want to jump in on this, or shall I move on? Uh, let me. I will just add because this will be the final installment of Kyle's Color Corner. I'll pause here for the iced tea to be dropped in. Uh, as they approach the bridge, the traffic light changes from red to green, and that allows them to proceed without having to slow down. I'll just say before we get to the Palmer House and the kind of final sequence that really one of the things that I took away from this episode, especially from you know the kind of whatever ten minutes we've just been talking about. Um, was this kind of terrible feeling of loss, desolation, dread, emptiness. And that's really ended up being, especially initially, even now, kind of more powerful than any of my intellectual theories that were trying to make sense um, of what happened in this episode. And I think this, you know, the intense, you know, that, that intense emotion of, like I said, desolation, dread, emptiness in this sort of depopulated world, um, of episode 18, which seems to bear, you know, uh, an uncanny resemblance to ours, uh, the one that we all live in. Um, that's why maybe I, and a lot of other people had such a visceral reaction to this episode upon first viewing. Um, and, but I, I think that that feeling and kind of, as we talked about at the end of, uh, the last episode of the podcast, the radical openness of the episode in the season, that'll probably keep it alive in our memories much longer than, you know, narrative art that I think plays more cleanly by the rules likely well. So yeah, just it, that's what stuck with me was that feeling kind of in the pit of my stomach of just kind of dread and this desolation uh, from this episode. So yeah, I just wanted to maybe say that before we start introducing some of those theories and talking more in depth about what's about to happen uh, back in Twin Peaks uh, at the Palmer house. Yeah, I think that's good. I think that's right. I think that um, Lynch would be very satisfied with that reaction. Right. I think Lynch tried to tell us way back in the um, Tracy and Sam getting killed by the experiment scene that this was going to be a horror show again, that we were going to get 18 hours of, of horror out of this. And so I think he wants you to come away with that feeling and the, the pure aesthetic goal has been accomplished. I think he'd be much happier with that than he would be uh, with interpretations that try to piece together as, as we've occasionally done what happened in quotes, you know, like what's, what's the chronology, what's the linear narrative, what happened in what order. I think he's much less interested in that. We might be, but I think he doesn't care very much. Um, my problem is combining the two, because in order to deal appropriately with my emotional reaction to the scenes, I sort of want to know things like, what was the plan meant to be? What is Cooper trying to execute? Is he being heroic here? Are we meant to regard this as success or failure? Because that sort of colors how I, I view his actions and, and responses and, and what I'm seeing in the pure aesthetic sense. Um, so, I find myself at a little bit of a middle ground between the pure um, aesthetic response that I want to have. And I think you did a really good job of articulating Jeff um, right. and the, the, the rest of it, the narrative. Well, and it's why it's why the Angelo Badalamenti music was so critically important to the original series and, and gave it a sense of warmth and texture and comfort that you don't get from the return with the David Lynch sound design that, you know, that deliberately, as you pointed out, can chops and screws and, and also just gives these long agonizing silences and these sequences where we're really not sure what reaction is being asked of us and so we find ourselves going am I, am I supposed to be unsettled am I supposed to be anxious am I supposed to find this humorous because we're not getting those cues that we ordinarily get and and that really pushes us to that completely visceral reaction because we don't have anything intellectually to go by in what is nominally a murder mystery police procedural detective show yeah. And when so much of the characters' reactions are, you know, visceral expressions of grief or sadness or trauma or fear, and particularly this episode, which is just undergirded by this constant um, Laura screaming in terror, right? We, how, how can you not respond viscerally? You have to go to that visceral place and follow those cues. Sorry, Jer. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's hard to describe the return as a police procedural, even though it certainly has a lot of police police procedural aspects, but you know, they, they certainly went whole hog on the mythology for the return. Sure. Uh, it was def definitely not, uh, well, I mean, I, I say that, but so many aspects of the return that 
were not fully explored do fall into the kind of season two sideshow plot, you know, what the hell's going on, who cares stuff. Some more relate, potentially relatable into the mythology, like, for example, Red, the magician, uh, the, the, the Tremond or Chalfont boy, I think, uh, versus, you know, the cast of characters being discussed at the roadhouse. So any, anyway, back to where we were in part 18, Coop hangs a left by the double R diner, which is closed at night, uh, which is, you know, we kind of got the impression previously that the double R is open all night. It's an literal all night diner, like the uh, song that was played uh, at the end of one of the episodes, wasn't like it? Santo and Johnny. Yeah. Well, or, I know no, it was, or, they or, played well, we Sleepwalk, did. and we, I think we, I, I, uh, discovered that All right. Night Diner was the name of the B side of that song on the yeah the original right it, 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 it appeared to be a kind of an all night you know twenty four hour place uh, and and they definitely had food to go there was like a to go sign in front of the of the yeah diner so we had a different sign here yeah as, correct so so they they come across and and as in seventeen Laura says to James I think you want to take me home now Coop asks Carrie if she recognizes anything. And she says no. Okay, that's eerie. That one, that one gets me. I have to say, that's really good. Ken, you 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 had a comment about the DSM. Oh yeah. Well, I was looking at a lot of the old stuff on Lost Highway. Um, once that sex scene uh, with the thalamic magic in it came up, you know, I got to thinking about Arquette and about doppelgangers and about um, fugue state, which is what um, many people have used as a lens to interpret Lost Highway and. Uh, the D- Rodley, I think, in the Lynch on Lynch book mentions that the DSM calls a fugue state a disorder whose main feature is, quote, sudden, unexpected travel away from home with inability to recall one's past, end quote. Um, and maybe David Foster Wallace quoted that in his Lost Highway article as well. But certainly that seems like what we're dealing with again here with these people who may or may not be Cooper and Laura Palmer returning back to this place. And, you know, she's obviously suddenly and unexpectedly traveled away from Odessa and cannot recall her, the past that he's asking her to recall. Yeah, it's a good point. I, it, it's, it's a great point. Um, they stop in front of the Palmer house and Coop asks her, do you recognize that house? Uh, and then Ken, you noted that they drove for two minutes, 44 seconds, two plus four plus four equals 10 number of completion. Uh, le- leaving aside methodological problems. That's <laughs> awesome. Uh, they really are all tens and sevens though, or close to it. So we get the shot of the exterior shot of the Palmer house, which has never looked more creepy. Carrie says no after she looks closely at the house. Uh, they get out of the car and they, they look at the house together, Coop and Carrie. Then they look at each other. Richard slash Cooper turns to Carrie slash Laura and reaches out his hands to her. And if you were guys, if you're going to go search on YouTube or the dark web or whatever to watch 17 and 18 at the same time, this is the part that you need to watch. Yeah. And Jeff, I think you're with me. Well, on yeah, this, I was right? going to say, I'm fairly agnostic about a lot of the rest of it. Uh, and I do kind of, I was, one question I was going to ask you is, you know, how, you know, purposeful do you, if you, you know, think these sinks are, you know, did you think these were in- intentional? But uh, there were a couple other moments that, that got to me. Uh, and, and, but from the, the, the finale, from this part on, yeah, it was kind of uncanny. Uh, how well they synced up together. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cause yeah, back to your, the point that you recently made, Kyle in 17, this is a point where you hear Laura's song. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and all, all of you should go to Laura, go to Laura, go to YouTube and watch the interview that Angelo Baldonetti gave about the composition of Laura's song, where he talks about sitting with David at, a piano, or I think it was a like a, an electric a Fender Rhodes electric piano, and David Lynch described to him a, a girl lost in the woods, who is sad and lonely and you know in trouble, but has has a chance to get out, a, a, a way to get out, and he 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 sort of in a great beautiful way, whether it's true or not, we don't know. He talks about David Lynch describing in words what the Laura's song part of the soundtrack to Twin Peaks perfectly encapsulates. But anyway, so that song is playing <clears throat> in 17 as Cooper and Carrie slash Laura are going up the steps to the hand to the house. 
Uh, they 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 hold hands and they walk up the steps. And the song in seventeen, as we see, uh, Coop holding his hand out to Laura to pull her away, is going on at the same time. The song itself is ascending musically as Cooper and Laura or slash Carrie are going up the steps in part eighteen. Uh, <clears throat> they continue to go up the stairs, and you know, you 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 get the sense that Carrie it almost feels a little bit comforted by Coop given her body language and kind of looking over for support from Cooper. And there's this sort of comforting hand gesture as they approach the house. They both look really nervous and they look at each other hesitantly as they get to the threshold. Uh, Carrie kind of looks like she's in a trance and keeps looking over at Coop slash Richard. Coop knocks at the door. <clears throat> they look at, e- at each other and then, Literally, as the door to the Palmer house opens in 18, Laura's body on the beach fades out in 17. Uh, th- this was the point where I'm like, yeah, no, it's not coincidental. It, it, it can't be. It matches way too perfectly. I'm not saying every single moment of the two episodes matches us up. And there, there's certainly points where they don't seem to be directly involved. But this is a point along with Cooper going through Carrie's door as he goes through the door and, and the boiler room that I think yeah, that was, was the other one undeniable. besides this kind of final sequence that, that, that kind of gave me chills a bit. So yeah, the one where, yeah, that you just mentioned Jared. Right. And so, uh, I'm sorry. What happens actually is the, as the door opens, we, the, in 17, we see the body on the beach, the body's still there, but the body's on the beach. Uh, the woman at the door is the one we've never seen before. It turns out, and she is the real life owner of this house in Everett, Washington. Her name is Mary Reber. And she says, yes. Cooper says, FBI, I'm Special Agent Dale Cooper. You know, he's not calling himself Richard. He still knows that he's Dale. He shows her his badge and asks, is Sarah Palmer here? And and then this is what happens. The song continues to ascend with with a piano line in 17, Laura's song. And then the woman at the door says, who? And at the very point in time that she says who, the body on the beach fades away in 17. And he repeats a little bit more confidently, Sarah Palmer. And she says, no, there's no one here by that name. And he says, do you know Sarah Palmer? And she says, no. And Cooper says, is this your house? Do you own this house or do you rent it? The woman says, yes, we own this house. And Cooper asks, who did you buy it from? Then the woman turns around and speaks to an off-screen person in the living room that hopefully exists uh, and says, honey, what was the name of the woman who sold us the house? We can't hear his answer. And she turns back and says, Chalfont, a Mrs. Chalfont. Cooper is confused and pauses and thinks. And of course, we know Mrs. Chalfont slash Mrs. Tremont appears in the original series in Firewalk With Me. Uh, she's the woman who lived in a trailer uh, next to a house that Laura would visit on the Meals on Wheels program, uh, the Agoraphobic agoraphobic what was his name harold smith harold, harold smith yeah yeah and miss chalfont's yeah, Her- Her- grandson Her- was practicing magic yeah yeah that's right that miss chalfont is is lives next door to harold smith and her grandson is practicing magic she does not want the creamed corn i mean she's clearly some sort of supernatural entity in the mythos uh the chalfonts and then tremonts were also the owners of the trailer uh, that disappeared in the Deer Meadow trailer park in Fire Walk With Me, uh, and and I think are associated with a pile of earth where Chet Desmond found the owl cave ring and then disappeared, never to be seen again in the franchise. And then in Fire Walk With Me, Mrs. <clears throat> Chalfont gives Laura the picture, you know, that she says would look good on her wall that seems to depict the space that we've seen so much of in this season uh, associated with, you know, the, the Black Lodge with the, the flower... Uh, wallpaper, right? So, it's, yeah. it's it's either it's either the room above the convenience right, store, right. or the Dutchman's, or both. I, I don't know. Well, and also Cooper in the original series goes to the the Chalfont home 
uh, and and there's someone new there. It's you that's know when true. the door is open, yeah, it is right. not the person they expect to find there. It's someone else and whose story doesn't sync up. Uh, and that's when they learn uh, when Cooper learns that Laura had the same dream that yeah. he had, uh, and that is the episode at the end of which um, he. Uh, arrests Leland, uh, and, and, uh, you know, for, and discover, we discover that, uh, Leland is in fact Bob, or he discovers, we knew it a couple episodes before, but that's when Bob is caught. That's the evil that men do, you know, owl flying out of the TV screen at you, scaring yeah. the hell out of you scene. So it's, f- I mean, there's f- a lot of connections to these people. I'd forgotten about that, Kyle, and that's perfect, you know, for this scene. Exactly. Right, because you've got somebody opening the door whose story doesn't square, and they're not the ones you expect to be living there. So, yeah, very much, very much in line with that. Right. And Cooper really, I think, is grasping for straws here in terms of a realistic expectation of anyone being able to answer his question. Because then he asked, do you know who she bought it from? I mean, it is a small town, so maybe that would be the case. But I think most people probably have no idea who the – I guess penultimate owner of their house was before they bought it. Uh, and anyway, <coughs> this woman says, no, I don't. She turns to her off screen husband or companion or whatever, asks who owned it before Mrs. Chalfont. She turns back and says, no. And then Cooper asks her, her name. And she says, Alice, Alice Tremont. And Cooper says, okay, sorry to bother you so late at night. And Alice says, that's Okay. And Cooper says, good night. And Alice says, good night. So we've got some good small town manners here at the, uh, at the threshold here of the Palmer house, you know, and, and it's interesting because as this conversation is going on between Cooper and Alice Tremond about the history of title ownership of this house in 17, we've gone to the technicolor wizard of Oz, black and white to a new world, a new dawn, a new morning, where it, we're in bright color within the pilot of Twin Peaks. And it's the scene where we see Josie Packard and Pete Martell. And these are two families with a very torturous history, right? Uh, competitive history, fighting over land, literally fighting over the, this land, the mill, this property uh, for generations. And at the same time that we see this interaction between Josie and Pete Martell, who are certainly accommodated fine to each other, despite their the names that are attached, the, you know their 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 last names. Uh, we see this conversation between Coop and Alice Tremont about the property transfers between the Chalfonts and the Tremonts, who are you know a, a insidious or at least questionable uh, set of people within the Black Lodge. Yeah, Kyle, I will defer to you if there's any probate insight to be gained from uh this this part of the show since that's your specialty yeah i, I am not a member of the uh, of the washington bar but I, I definitely think that uh cooper needs to go by the twin peaks uh courthouse the next day and and do a title search on this i mean i think checking down the title is is the the logical next step i think that's right he need, he or he needs to engage a deed dog yeah that's right that's right uh, to, to hunt down um so as cooper and carrie turn and walk away down the stairs this is when Sarah off screen begins moaning with despair or anger or rage in part 17. And I think this is fundamentally critical to what's going on. And I, and I will say JR that I'm still, I'm not totally convinced that this sync thing between 17 and 18 was done purposefully or at least consciously by David Lynch. Uh, but if there is for me, the strongest argument in case in, in favor of the sync is this right here as they leave the Palmer house in 18 and 17, you get this shot inside it and it is kind of uncannily timed to coincide. So this, I thought was the strongest argument in favor of the sink theory. Right. Right. So Cooper and Carrie, they, they walk into the street, they pause. Lord turns to him. Cooper looks back at the house. We see the exterior shot of the house. Laura or Carrie looks at Cooper uh, and then he leans and kind of walks forward. He puts his hand up in a motion. Like I think some of you suggested Jeff was like what he does in the lodge to move the curtain. Uh, and also like Dougie Jones kind of did in front of the statue at the lucky seven uh, building. And then he says, what year is this? And when Coop says this in part 18, this is when we see Sarah start 
throwing stuff around and destroying stuff and then seeing time displacement happen in part 17. Uh, Laura, she blinks. She looks stricken. She looks up at the Palmer house. We see the exterior, exterior shot. And then we see the same moaning Laura sounds almost like Laura, Sarah Palmer screaming for Laura after she dies in the pilot, but also like what we hear in the Palmer house in 17, the same guttural moaning, uh, Laura, Carrie, whoever in part 18, she's, she's in the street and she can hear it. She can hear it from part 17. She can hear it from the pilot of twin peaks and she starts shaking and she screams this terrible, you know, soul rending scream at exactly the same point in time that Sarah Palmer, after failing to puncture the picture of Laura, the homecoming queen picture with a bottle of vodka, that scene fades to black. Laura in 17, Laura in 18 is screaming. Uh, Coop snaps out of his trance or wherever he is and looks over to her. And in the Palmer house, the lights are off. Then there's an electrical flash, like a short, like we saw when, when Coop stuck his fork into the electrical socket in the Dougie scene in part 15, I think. Uh, and then a fade to black. In the meantime, in part 17, Coop is leading Laura in color through the woods. And the credits start rolling as we hear the phonograph sound and then Laura disappearing and the whooshing sounds and screaming in 17. Um, and then as the credits roll in 18, we see a dark tinted slow motion replay of Laura whispering in Dale's ear in the lodge from part one of the return. So, uh, you know, we're done. This is the end of the episode. We made it. You know, we're in. Okay. So this is the conclusion of part 18 or episode 18, part two. Uh, we are going to be back and we're going to have our, uh, some concluding thoughts uh, about the series, about the return. Uh, that'll be episode 19 of Wrapped in Podcast. Uh, but for now, thanks for listening uh, and look out for the next episode. Uh, we're not ready to say goodbye yet. Thanks. Showed it to a boy in school today Judy, where did you go wrong? You used to make me smile when I was down Judy was a teenage rebel She did it with the boy when she was young She gave herself to books and learning She gave herself to being number one Judy, I don't know you if gonna show me everything Judy, I don't know you if you're gonna show me everything Judy got a book at school She went under the covers with a torch Fell asleep till the first morning She dreamt about the girl who stole a horse Judy never felt so good except when she was sleeping Judy never felt so good except when she was sleeping Dream of horses. 
And the song she wrote was Judy and the Dream of Horses Dream of Horses Dream of Horses Dream of Horses The best looking boys are taken The best looking girls are staying inside So Judy, where does that lead you? Walking the street from Another song about your dream of horses Write a song